That warm, inviting music you just heard is the opening of Ludwig van Beethoven's String Quartet No. 7 in F Major Opus 59 No. 1, known as the first of the Razumovsky Quartets, and we'll get into why in a moment. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of CD Records, welcoming you to another Classical Chicago podcast, episode number 47 in this case. Those of you who've listened to this program before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast, and that new release is our release, in this case, for October 2021. It's Beethoven Complete String Quartets, Volume 2, The Middle Quartets, featuring the wonderful Dover Quartet, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is... Camden Shaw, the cellist of the Dover Quartet, who you heard featured in that lovely opening of the Beethoven Quartet. Hi, Camden. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. As you mentioned, this is the Dover Quartet's fourth album for Sadie Records. But before we get into your recording history, let's talk briefly about the quartet's history as a quartet, how you guys were formed and when. I will just mention some Highlights. The Dover has been hailed as the next Guarneri Quartet by the Chicago Tribune and the Young American String Quartet of the Moment by the New Yorker. The quartet really catapulted to international stardom in 2013 when it stunningly swept all the prizes on offer at the prestigious Banff competition. Camden, why don't you explain how the quartet got to that wonderful moment? Well, we slowly assembled the quartet. So back in school at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, Milena, the violist, and I, we started playing together right away. I was 16 and she was 17 when we started. And we played in all sorts of permutations. We played in string quartets with other violinists. We played in piano quartets, all sorts of things like that. Always loved playing together. And something similar was true of the two violinists. Joel and Brian had actually known each other since they were 14 years old from a summer camp. Encore School for Strings, I think it was, out in Ohio. They loved playing together. They had a lot of groups together and actually had a wonderful string quartet of their own. Just really through happenstance, their lower strings graduated a year before they did. And so their wonderful quartet was now just (laughs) two lonely violinists looking for a bottom half of the ensemble. And Milena and I had always tried to find a perfect match for our violinist, but never quite found the right fit. And as soon as we combined these two groups, that's how the Dover Quartet started. That instantly felt really special to us. I think we did have the benefit that each of these pairs had already been playing together for three years before the quartet itself actually joined into one entity. And at that point, then we were very (laughs) intoxicated by quartet playing, obsessed with it and rehearsing all the time. And one of our coaches, Shmuel Ashkenazi, who was the first violinist of the Vermeer Quartet. He was one of our main coaches, and at one point he told us, he said, you guys should really consider getting married as a quartet. (laughs) Words like that from him, who we really admired and who knew a lot about quartet playing, we thought, well, that bit of support and inspiration will really try it. And I think it was at that moment that we decided to try to make a living at it. By now, that was about 12 years ago. Time has been going quickly. Well, that's impressive. So I have a few things I should mention at this point. Of course, the Vermeer Quartet, a Chicago ensemble, has made a few recordings on CD before it called it uh, a day. So we are very glad to have them on the label in that connection. You mentioned your colleagues by first name, so I'm going to give you the full listing now. The Dover Quartet is Joel Link and Brian Lee violins, Milena Pajaro-Vandestadt 
Viola, and of course, my guest on this podcast, Camden Shaw Cello. And I should note that, of course, the name Dover comes from Curtis, where you guys assembled. Do you want to explain a little more about that? Yeah, so we're called the Dover Quartet because of the wonderful masterpiece by Samuel Barber, Dover Beach, which he wrote actually for himself to perform with the Curtis String Quartet. And there's a wonderful recording of them performing the work. We wanted a name that subtly tied us to the Curtis Institute since we all met there in undergrad, but also not to be too obvious. (laughs) So that was a nice connection also to a composer we really admire. And we've played the piece many times now, and it's a fitting work for us, very deeply emotional, and certainly, of course, the historical tie to our school. And, of course, that's a piece for singer and quartet. I should note that you have residencies at both Northwestern University here in Chicago area, which is how you come to be on the Sadie label, of course, since we're a label devoted to Chicago artists, and the Curtis Institute. Can you give a brief explanation of both of those roles? We've actually been teaching at Northwestern now for something like six years. It's really been a wonderful relationship. It's evolved, and of course, over COVID, it had to evolve uh, quickly. But essentially, we've been flying in and coaching their chamber music students very intensively for a few days at a time. And we would give uh, three concerts a year there. So even though our presence was somewhat sporadic and had to fit into our touring schedule, we really felt like we were part of the community there and have maintained these long relationships now with students there, which is wonderful and gotten to take some of them from freshman year all the way through graduation now a few times. And that's really special for us. And of course, over COVID, we had to do a lot of that teaching online, but still maintain that relationship. It was actually just in this last year that we started teaching at the Curtis Institute in Philly. And that is an exciting new part of our lives. Of course, Curtis being our birthplace as an ensemble is very special to us. We really are excited to try to encourage more quartet formation there. There's actually been surprisingly few ensembles to form at the Curtis Institute in the last decade. They've been really supportive and brought in young quartets from the outside, and that will continue to happen. Actually, this year we're going to be teaching the incredibly talented Viano Quartet, who won the band competition the last time around. That'll be very special to work with them. But we're also really hoping to foster more young students in undergrad uh, to actually become interested in forming a quartet or trio. So we're thrilled to be embarking on this very new project with the Curtis Institute now. Great. Well, the album we're talking about today, of course, is volume two of your emerging complete Beethoven string quartet cycle. So let's talk briefly about the quartet's history with the Beethoven quartets and where you've performed the cycle. We started working on Beethoven quartets right away when we formed. Obviously, they're considered the pinnacle of the quartet repertoire. And so we wanted to get our feet wet as soon as we could. And actually, I think one of the first Beethovens we played, in fact, I think it was the first, was 59, number three, known to be one of the most challenging quartets, actually. I think we were trying to be fearless and wanted to bite off as much as we could chew. And so that was one of our first pieces together. And since then, of course, we slowly expanded through all of his 16 works for quartet. Our first cycle was in Buffalo. They have this wonderful cycle called the Slee Cycle, which has been endowed for a long time, actually been many decades. It might even go as far back as the Budapest Quartet. Buffalo, New York has been able to present the full cycle of Beethoven quartets every year since the foundation of the Slee Cycle. We were invited to do that one year, and that was our first foray into performing a full cycle. And since then, we've done it in Montreal, in New York, with People's Symphony Concerts. We're actually still involved right now in doing a cycle with them. And I'm sure we'll have many more. It's always a new experience. Depending on what order you play the quartets, it can shape your perception 
by comparison of what you've just heard, what you're about to hear. And that's really fascinating as well and, and in a way different from recording because in this recording project, we've essentially gone in order. So the relationship with these quartets will continue to evolve and deepen through our lives, but we definitely do feel like we know them fairly well at this point, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> Indeed. Before we get to the music, the booklet for this album begins with a personal note, really a dedication. Can you explain what that's about? For several decades, our producer, Alan Bice, worked pretty much exclusively with one recording engineer, Bruce Egri. And they had a wonderful relationship, formed Azika Records together, and worked on countless projects. During the course of our project, according to Beethoven's, Bruce had a long fight with cancer and unfortunately passed away and was deeply felt in the project that he was not there. Of course, for Alan, it was really, really a huge difference, uh, someone he's worked with most of his adult life. And so we wanted to dedicate this project to him, this middle album. And he did work as the engineer on this one, correct? That is correct. Yeah, and actually the sound, even as we go forward into the late quartets, the setup of the microphones and the general approach to the spacing and mic choices and all those are still Bruce's. So in a way, his style and ear are very much a part of the project to the end, even though he couldn't be there with us for the whole thing. I see. That makes this album even extra special. The first volume of this set was the Opus 18, or early quartets. How do these middle quartets differ from the Opus 18 set, and are there points of similarity as well? One of the most often quoted differences between the early quartets and the middles is that the 18s were Beethoven showing that he could do what Haydn was doing and what Mozart was doing, but add his own personal flair, but that really they were very classical quartets. And I think to a degree that's, of course, true. Even from the form of Opus 18, number one, it's the most clear sonata allegro form you could possibly hear in a piece. There's a lot of instrument voice imitation of one another, but it's deeply classical, and it's basically rooted around the first violin for the most part. Then in the middle quartets, he spreads the roles much more evenly around the ensemble, and the technical demands on each individual player are unbelievably high. It's actually from the middle quartets that we have this famous quote from one of his friends, a violinist, saying, oh, these pieces are absolutely impossible to play. How could you write anything like this? And Beethoven replied by saying, what do I care about you and your little instrument when I moved by the spirit? He's admitting that he's not concerned with how you're supposed to be able to do it, but just that he wants you to achieve it. So that's our common mold in, into which we describe the earlies and the middles. But I would say that it is astounding the degree of emotional depth and intensity that the earlies still contain. And the very first quartet in the set of, of the 18s, you know, 18 number one, that slow movement was really already unlike any slow movement that a composer had put in a quartet before. It was like an operatic tragedy based around Romeo and Juliet and was very visual and atmospheric and potent beyond what anybody had really tried for a quartet. So I would say the 18s already were unapologetically pioneering, but it is still true that the middle quartets are a whole different level of technical prowess of form, the much longer forms in the first movement of 59-1. There's no repeat of the first section, which is already unusual. There almost always would have been a repeat of the exposition, and he abandons that, which, by the way, is something that becomes normal for him in the late quartets. He really is pushing the envelope. These quartets are usually more long form and much more technical, very emotional, very intense, 
And of course, Opus 95, as I'm sure we'll talk about, is different in that it's very short, but it's exceptionally groundbreaking as well. Great. Well, the middle quartet set begins with the three Opus 59 quartets, which are collectively known as the Mrazumovsky or Russian quartets. Can you explain who this Count Razumovsky was and what his connection is to the music? So the Razumovsky quartets were a commission from Count Razumovsky, a Russian diplomat, and he wanted each of these quartets from Beethoven to have a Russian theme in them. And so that's also a little bit unique because Beethoven often was writing music really just in the way that he exactly wanted it with very few folk references. And these pieces, although, again, they're groundbreaking and very Beethovenian in that sense, they do actually have, in most cases, quotes of famous Russian themes or at least a a theme in the style of a Russian folk song. So while they're, again, very virtuosic and pushing the envelope in that dimension, they're also wonderfully folky, actually. And of course, in the case of Opus 59, number one, the first in the set, there is an actual tem russe uh, written in French, because of course, that's what they spoke in Russia, at least among the aristocracy. Then that's actually the title of the finale. Let's move to that now. Is there anything you'd want to say about this movement to let people know what to expect? Well, the last movement of 59.1 is, is so wonderful because He does take this Russian theme, which is absolutely infectiously joyful and bumbling, and combines it with unbelievably intricate and difficult rhythmic patterns between the instruments. And so while 59.3 is perhaps the most obviously virtuosic in the last movement, 59.1, from the perspective of the performers, is probably the most difficult. The last movement is so intricate with these hocketed rhythms, where essentially the composite from the whole group is that you hear running 16th notes, but each of the members is only playing dotted rhythms. And it's actually very difficult, the risk of potentially getting too nerdy about this. The way that the human brain processes rhythm is not like a computer. So when you have individual humans trying to play a dotted note followed by shorter notes, because of natural swing rhythm and the way that humans feel rhythm, it's almost impossible to get a perfectly even hocket at that speed. And in fact, I've never heard it played or recorded where it really sounded exactly like flowing 16th notes, but I will say that we worked quite hard in it. It's pretty close. (laughs) It sounds pretty cool, but it's a very, very hard movement. And I love the way that he combines some of those technical and rhythmical challenges with these really rustic traditional themes. This is an ataka. It comes straight out of the third moment. So what you'll hear, because we'll start from the beginning of the moment, is the trill coming from the third moment into the fourth. Then we'll hear a good chunk of that so people can hear about all the technical things that you just mentioned that make this movement so delightful. So here is the first part of the Temrus Allegro finale of Beethoven's String Quartet, number seven in F major, opus 59, number one, as performed by the Dover Quartet. Thank you. 
You just heard the first part of the fourth moment, the finale of Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 7, the first of the three Razumovsky quartets, Opus 59. That movement is titled Tem Rus because it opens with a Russian theme. Now that we've heard the finale, Camden, I should note my guest on this podcast is Camden Shaw, the cellist of the Dover Quartet, who you just heard playing that. Why don't we talk about what comes before it in the seventh quartet? Well, this quartet has one of the great slow movements of all time, honestly. It's a very personal slow movement from Beethoven. Uh, In fact, he writes that this movement is describing the weeping willow at the grave of my brother. Mm. And it's a beautiful image. It's a deeply sad movement, but it also has one of the most wonderfully heartfelt, bittersweet, nostalgic phrases in all of his writing and it's a D-flat major section that comes in the middle of the movement. And truly, it is difficult to perform without crying a little bit because it's so powerful and it's so vulnerable and so honest. And I think one of the things that Beethoven did as well or better than anyone, maybe except Schubert was probably in this category as well, was that he could take music that was in major and make it the most devastatingly honest and bittersweet and tragic sound. So, and it's something in the later quartets he'll do with the Cavatina, famously. But this slow movement in 59-1 has one of those great moments of all music. Also, his scherzo in this piece is just unbelievably ambitious. It's playful. It's not serious, but it's ambitious in its scope and how he can take the tiniest little motives, rhythmic motives and melodic motives, and create an enormous scherzo out of this. It just dwarfs the size of what you would expect a scherzo movement to be in a quartet to the point where it's almost a feature. But in 59-1, each movement is an enormous experience, and that scherzo really is quite special as well. We open this podcast with the beautiful opening theme of the Allegro, so inviting, so I think people have a taste of that already. And we Mm -hmm. mentioned that third movement, the largest movement of the quartet, the Adagio Molto e Mesto, opens right into the so joyful Russian theme of the fourth moment. And you mentioned the size of this piece, even without an exposition repeat in the first moment, it's 39 minutes. And it's the reason that this volume two goes to a third disc, because we need disc one just for this piece, the way it breaks out, as as opposed to the six Opus 18 quartets that would fit on two discs. The five middle quartets actually 
don't quite fit on uh, two discs, so it's in fact a three disc set sold for the price of only two discs. Before we proceed further with this new volume, let's just talk briefly about the public and critical reception that greeted Volume 1, released in September of last year, 2020. And I will just mention two reviews from WQXR Radio in New York had to say the following. It's hard to imagine a group better suited to recording these works than the Dover Quartet, who play with self-assuredness and charisma. The Dover effortlessly taps into the cleverness, wit, and unbridled sense of fun that continue to make these works compelling a quarter millennium after Beethoven's birth. And Fanfare Magazine adds, If he were alive today and hadn't lost his hearing yet, Beethoven would find it hard to believe that his quartets could be played with such perfection of execution, such beauty of tone, such nuance of expression, and such keen understanding of his music's meaning and intent. I'm sure it makes you feel good to read reviews like that. Is it also helpful to the group? It is so encouraging, and it does mean a lot when you put so much into a project and to have it so well received. And it's inspiring, I think, hearing some of those reviews encouraged us as we went forward because it's an enormous undertaking over three years and actually much more material per year than you would usually record as a group. So it was very meaningful. I always chuckle a little bit inside when something's described as effortless because the amount of effort that goes into it is just unbelievable. You know, you want it to appear effortless. And so I'm very happy that that was the perception. And of course, I'm sure the reviewer knows that as well, but that always does make me chuckle. Did it help the quartet to have this volume come out in the fall of the pandemic year 2020 when your live in-person performance opportunities were so limited? Yeah, absolutely pandemic has really emphasized the importance of recording and media in general and how we communicate through music. And it was wonderful and meaningful to have a project that was still very much alive and flourishing um, when we could not be performing in person. So absolutely, it was very heartening for us to have these recordings being met with some success during that period. As long as we're on the subject, how did the quartet manage for the year plus when there were so few traditional performance opportunities? And also, how did it affect your teaching? It was a hard year with the pandemic. Like all musicians who were building their living off of playing live, we really just lost everything pretty much overnight financially. We were very fortunate to still be teaching part-time at Northwestern and then also started this project with Curtis where we were on faculty there. And in that sense, we were unbelievably fortunate to have some stability during that time. But it was still very challenging. I think in all honesty, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to take a break from the quartet in a very healthy way. We'd been plugging away, I would say tirelessly, except that's not the right word because we were tired. (laughs) We were plugging away ceaselessly for many years on end. And I think to a degree, we're all workaholics. And we had a really hard time saying no to concerts and really forcing ourselves to take time off. And so actually, with the pandemic, we were able to take several months where we didn't see each other, which was the first time in, again, more than a decade that we hadn't spent almost every day together. So psychologically, it was probably in in many ways very helpful for us, to be honest. You mentioned that your residency at Northwestern usually involved flying in for in-person coaching. How did you adjust during the pandemic? 
Well, we ended up doing a lot more coaching over Zoom, which is very challenging. If you've ever heard a group of musicians playing over Zoom and there's a clarinet in the group, you cannot hear anything but clarinet. <laughs> there's something about it that just really obliterates everything else. At times it's rather funny and, and other times frustrating, especially coaching chamber music. There's so much discussion about balance and color, and those things are very hard to hear over rather simplistic internet connection. But there's always a lot of work that you can do and actually focusing on the bright side of things. Northwestern was able to, with strict regulation, allow for certain groups to meet in person and play for us. So although we were over Zoom, they were together. And then there's still a lot of discussion you can have about timing and intonation because those things are very clear over even a very basic microphone setup. Um, so in a way, maybe it gave us all an opportunity to think a lot more about syntax and timing and intonation, which of course is the undertow lurking in the mind of every musician with a microtonal instrument. <laughs> so it was still very productive, actually. It was challenging, but productive. So now as we move on to Opus 59, number two, I would like to ask if the quartet approached this integrated Opus 59 set with its more unified opus idea differently from the more unconnected or individualized Opus 18 quartets on volume one? That's a great question. I think we did approach the 59s more as a unit. And actually, one of the things that helped us do that was in the past, we'd given a concert where we played all three of them in one go, which was one of the most challenging single concerts we've ever done, again, because of their technical demands. But it really is clear that they are a set. They function very well together as a concert, actually. I think because of that, we always psychologically match them together. Even the way that we recorded them, there was something about it where it felt like they were all melded into each other. There was actually one case where we even mixed up the order of operations where we recorded some of 59.2 and some of 59.3 in the same day, which is not always done. And sometimes you want to have them separated psychologically, but in this case, they really were intertwined. Well, of course, Opus 59, number two, is the middle of the set. It's overall quartet number eight of Beethoven in E minor. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this piece in general. As a, somebody who listens to the radio, I feel like maybe this might be the most played of the set. Of course, it's the only one in, in a minor key. Right. Well, 59.2 is interesting because this is probably too reductionist, but it is fair to say that he was experimenting with more vertical motives rather than horizontal. So if you listen to a lot of 59.1, the lines are very, very long, and he's developing phrases and whole sentences and clauses linguistically, right? But 59.2 is a little bit more like a scientist to a degree, especially in the first movement. He's taking just a two-chord, completely vertical motive and basing a lot of things around that with scales in between. <laughs> so not to say that there aren't melodies, of course, but it's a much more vertical approach to writing, and it really does feel quite different. The last movement also is quite vertical and choppy. I mean, the accompaniment is really like a horse gallop that keeps going, and then mm -hmm. there's one line above it in the first violin for the most part singing along of course, shares a lot with the other 59s, has a various Russian theme feel, but it's a very different approach. And as you said, in being in a minor key, it's much more dangerous feeling and mm. at times angry and at times very smoky and acidic in the first movement. So you don't know whether your death is going to come by certain means or other means, but you certainly feel very nervous the whole first movement. And it's an interesting effect from him. And how is that resolved in the next two movements? 
That's a good question. Well, the slow movement is, again, really special uh, and one of our favorites in 59.2. So different from 59.1, so that one being deeply tragic and personal. This one is spiritual and very hopeful and patient. This phrase we hear of the music of the spheres, it's almost along those lines and in a way might predict where he'll end up again in the late quartets with uh, the Heilergedankesang something even more truly spatial and slow. So this is almost a stepping stone to that. Deeply patient, beautiful writing, and very pure. There's something very pure about it. So even the emotions that we have, they're not colored by too much complexity. And that's, of course, not a criticism. It's a wonderfully clear beauty to that. So as a point of comparison, in 59.1, the bittersweet, tragic, and yet nostalgic feel that we were talking about which is a deeply complex emotion, something that Schubert sought very often in his writing. In this movement, 59-2 slow movement, we don't have many emotions like that that are full of complication. It's usually very clear, and there's a refreshing simplicity and purity to that. And maybe that's needed as a catharsis after the first movement and a way to sort of reset for the rest of the piece. Then the third movement has this Russian theme in it, and it's very rustic and kind of flighty. The first part of the third movement is actually a light, dancey thing that, again, feels a little off-kilter and uncomfortable and explodes a few times. I guess you'd tie that into the first movement to say that this piece is happy to be surprising you often. <laughs> he wants to keep you on your toes, and he really achieves that, you know, most of the fast writing. And, of course, this Russian theme is actually in the middle section of this scherzo, which is actually far longer than the outer sections. I think you've set that up so nicely that we'll go right into hearing it. So here is about the first half, I would say, of the Allegretto third movement scherzo of Beethoven's string quartet number eight in E minor, opus 59, number two, the movement that has this quartet's Russian theme or thème russe as performed once again by the Dover Quartet.
You just heard a portion of the Allegretto Scherzo of Beethoven's String Quartet No. 8 in E minor, Opus 59, No. 2, performed by the Dover Quartet from their new album on CD Records, Beethoven Complete String Quartets Volume 2, the middle quartets. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, you can find this album on all streaming sites once it's officially released on October 8th. That means Spotify, Apple Music, the more high-end places like Idagio and Primephonic. And even before that official release date, you can pre-order it as a CD on places like Amazon.com and Archive Music, and of course, directly from the Sadie Records website, uh, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, cdrecords.org. So however you like to experience your music, I hope you will take advantage of it to get this really wonderful album, the second volume of the emerging complete Beethoven string quartet cycle with the Dover Quartet. In addition to the brilliant performances, as you just heard, I really think this is a terrific sounding album and credit, of course, goes to producer Alan Bice and engineer Bruce Egri, whose contribution we talked about near the top of the podcast. You mentioned that setup. Can you describe how they captured your sound? Yeah, it's a wonderful space in which we're recording in Goshen, Indiana. And it's a pretty large concert hall, which has some good things about it and some challenges. The good things, of course, are that it's a little bit friendlier, naturally has a beautiful reverb, and the hall itself supports most frequency ranges quite democratically, which is rare in a space. So it's not going to accidentally feature one instrument over another. Some of the challenges of a space that large, again, the reverb is not optional. So sometimes when you Mm -hmm. want more clarity, and, you know, of course, I'm speaking as a cellist, so thinking up the low frequencies, it can be very hard as a cellist to be clear in a really big hall. The higher sounds, just because they have many, many more vibrations per second, the possibility for clarity is a lot easier with slower, longer wavelengths. Just because of physics, it's not as easy to have clarity. And so in that sense, they had to balance having quite close miking with some more distant miking to capture the room. They had a lot of versatility through that to create a balance and a clarity level that we were comfortable with. And actually, it was this project, knowing that we were going to record 59.3 particularly, which needs to be very clear, 
we did have some conversations with Alan and Bruce about drying this sound up a little bit. We'd done already the Schumann quartets with the two of them in that space, and it was very ringing. And so we actually had some concerns about playing something so fast and delicate. But they were really able to keep the warmth of the hall, but still have a lot more clarity. And and I, I agree with you. I do think it, it's a wonderful sound that they got on this album. So glad you mentioned the hall. Then we're talking about Souter Concert Hall at the Goshen College Music Center in Goshen, Indiana, which is about 25 miles east of South Bend. And I will shamelessly mention uh, an album I produced there uh, that was our first release of 2021, uh, which was a voice and piano album, actually. It was Baritone Will Liverman's Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers with pianist Paul Sanchez. And I thought the hall sound for that very different kind of arrangement was equally ideal, and it was real delight to work in that hall for that project as well. And now that I've shamelessly mentioned another CD recording, let's talk about the Dover Quartet's recording history, which starts with your all-Mozart tribute, that's the title of the album, tribute album on CD, and then our voices of Defiance and Beethoven, volume one of your Beethoven cycle, the Opus 18 Quartets. And the quartet is also recorded for Azika Records, the label of Alan Bice that you mentioned earlier, including those complete Schumann quartets, a set that was actually nominated for a 2021 Grammy. What was it like to receive that recognition? Oh my gosh, it was a complete surprise, to be honest. I I think we'd dreamed of maybe one day being nominated for a Grammy, but it was an absolute surprise, and it really meant a lot to us. The project had been very challenging. Like any recording project, we put a lot into it, and I think that recognition, it meant so much to us, and to be a part of the whole day, of course, this was all virtual, but we still got to be waiting in the wings and get to see the Grammys unfolding and wondering if you're going (laughs) to get the award. It was really, really exciting and fun. And of course, it was another Sadi wonderful group who won, as I'm sure you'll mention. (laughs) Indeed, this is in the category called Best Chamber Music slash Small Ensemble Performance. And every Grammy category has five nominees, and three of them happen to be Sadi artists last year. You guys, as well as Third Coast Percussion and the Pacifica Quartet, the latter two for recordings actually on Sadi. And Pacifica Quartet actually won for its album titled Contemporary Voices, which it was also my privilege to produce. So yeah, it was a very exciting, frankly, dominate that category last year. And I'm yeah. <laughs> hopeful that your volume one of your Beethoven cycle released in September of 2020, which will be eligible for consideration in the upcoming Grammy cycle on which recording Academy members will vote in the fall for the nominations. And uh, the track we're about to play is an example of why I'm hopeful that you might get such recognition. And of course, that's going to be the finale that you mentioned earlier. But before we get to it, uh, what are your thoughts in general on Opus 59, number three, the C major, and how it differs from the other two in the 59 set? Well, I think 59.3 really does function as the closer for the three of these quartets if they're played as a concert. And you could make the argument pretty easily that they should be played that way. When you hear them all in a row in a concert, there's a perfect balance of different styles. Of course, we go from major to minor back to major. The contrast between the long lines versus the vertical of 59.2 and then 59.3 is triumphant and a synthesis of both long line and very vertical powerful playing, kind of like the Eroica symphony. It really is a closer. It's made to get the crowd on their feet. It's powerful and broad and strong and everything middle Beethoven is famous for. The very clear choice of key of C major 
is perfect as well. And he utilizes the lowest string in the ensemble, the cello open C string, to get as grand and as deep a sound as you can get out of this formation of instruments. And so right from the opening Allegro, once after this very nebulous and magical dreamland of an introduction, which is quite scary, actually, (laughs) scary dreamscape. From that point on, it's, again, almost textbook, uh, powerful Beethoven middle writing. And I'll tell you, since we're going to listen to the last movement, it's a very infamous movement for quartet players. It's very, very difficult, intricate. And I actually went on a year-long quest for the perfect bow, knowing that we were going to record this, Ah. because I had to find something that had an unbelievably clear sautier. I did finally find a a beautiful stick that would do it. And so I actually, yeah, I I bought that bow for this piece. (laughs) So that's how important it is to us as players and certainly recording it. You know, you want your equipment to be able to be pushed to this degree. Well, I think it's fair to say that the blazingly fast Allegro Molto finale has become something of a signature piece for the quartet, thanks to an amazing live performance recorded for NPR's performance today, a few years ago, I guess now, that you can find on YouTube. And people really should go in and literally see that performance because you really get to see it performed. But how does the performance on the new album differ from that one, both in terms of how it was made and the result? Well, of course, being edited, we can piece it together from the best moments. The version that's on the album really is a different level in terms of technical cleanliness. I guess speaking only for myself, I really prepared very hard for this recording, for the album version of the finale. It's extremely difficult, and we worked it up to tempo for a long time. And it's actually, I mean, it's a silly thing to say because it's, well, it's silly, but it's its actually much faster on the album. We did play it at that tempo. It's not like we doctored with any of the <laughs> recording devices to turn the tempo up. We felt that Beethoven probably wanted it to be a real thrill ride. And there's always this effect when you're playing it that often it feels really fast. And when you listen back to it, of course, it's always going to sound fast, but it usually doesn't sound as brilliant as you think, because when you're performing it, your brain is so busy executing all these actions that rarely does it come across quite as brilliantly as you want. And so for this one, we actually did up the tempo of the whole movement considerably over what we'd done in the past, and it was challenging. And I think actually, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story, which actually only Milena knows this. So if Brian and Joel hear this on the podcast, it's going to be... a. Uh, <laughs> Milena and I wanted it to be even slightly faster than uh, the violinists were comfortable with, but we realized that part of it was that they didn't like knowing in number just how fast it was, because it was very, very fast. And there was something about hearing the beats per minute in a number that we gleaned was stressful for them. So what we did was we agreed on a beats per minute tempo for the recording session, and then right before actually recording it, when we listened to the metronome, we just listen to a faster tempo. (laughs) So it was actually recorded, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was between like 172 and 174. But the violinists believed that we were recording it at 168. (laughs) So that helped psychologically somehow because we knew they could do it. And in a way, it wasn't very fair that we hijacked the process like that. I'm a little embarrassed by that, to be honest, but it is what happened. And I think the result is pretty astounding. So it's weird little tidbit from the recording session. (laughs) Well, the result certainly is, and I think that illustrates such a good example of of how to use recordings. I think, you know, in a live performance, you have the advantage of people watching you bowing furiously to give it that extra feel of excitement, whereas on the recording course, you don't get that. But the advantage of recording, as you mentioned, is you get to do multiple takes. And while some artists, I know it's true, tend to be more cautious in recording 
the best way to take advantage of those extra takes in recording is just the opposite, which is to be more adventurous knowing you can fix the mistakes and still get what is your ideal for how you'd love to perform it if you could perform it perfectly every time. So kudos to you guys for taking advantage of the process as people will hear right now. So here is the first part of the amazing, <laughs> blazingly fast Allegro Molto finale of Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 9 in C Major, Opus 59, Number no. 3, as performed by the Dover Quartet on their new album for CD Records. Thank you. 
need to catch our breath a bit yeah. after hearing. That was the Allegro Molto, or the first part of the Allegro Molto finale of Beethoven's third string quartet, Opus 59, the ninth quartet overall in C major of uh, the Beethoven 16 quartet cycle as performed on their new album of all the middle Beethoven quartets by the Dover Quartet. And the Dover Quartet is Joel Link and Brian Lee violins and Milena Paro van der Stadt viola and Camden Shaw cello, my guest on this podcast. Let's move on to the other two quartets in the middle set. Uh, number 10 is in E-flat major. It's opus 74 and uh, known as the harp quartet for its pizzicatos. But what is interesting and noted by Beethoven scholar Nancy November in her wonderful program notes for this album is that the earlier versions of this piece, which you know we all know how his pieces evolved because he was such a prolific sketcher, you really can see the development of his pieces, and we know that the early versions didn't even feature the pizzicatos for which the piece is named and known. That is so interesting. I actually did not know that <laughs> until hearing it from you earlier in prep for this podcast. That is so wild. It makes me wonder whether he knew on some level that this quartet needed a signature focal point, especially after writing something like 59.3, where everyone's going to remember the last movement. (laughs) It's just so memorable, so unique. And maybe he almost was worried about Opus 74 seeming a little bit too simple in comparison and having a really clear central theme. So yeah, with the Pizzicati, it it, uh, effortlessly became known as the Harp Quartet. (laughs) It's a good choice, Beethoven. Good good move. (laughs) Well, we haven't heard a slow movement yet, and this one I think is particularly gorgeous. So before we get to that, how would you describe the movements that surround it? Of course, we have the famous pizzicati harp effects in the first movement, and I think a particularly exciting scherzo in in this one. Yeah. Uh, What else would you want to mention? Well, Opus 74, for me, all of the movements in their own ways, they are very indicative of Beethoven's late writing much more so than Opus 95, which we'll, we'll get to in, in a second, no doubt. But that's one of the things I love about this quartet. So the slow movement, which I guess we're going to listen to, is uncannily similar to some of the slow movements in his late writing, like in 127, for instance, even 131. Essentially, these late slow movements are very expanded theme and variations movements, where the, even in the late, the tempi can change between sections. Uh, it's not necessary. But they're very similar in structure to the harp quartet, actually. Also, the scherzo of the harp is similar to, again, what he'll do in his late writing, particularly if you listen to what he does in 131, where he will take a scherzo theme, recycle it many times, more than the number of repetitions, and on one of the repeats, he'll do it very quietly, which is part of the big surprise. He does that here in 74 and famously in 131. That's one of the things I love about this quartet. On the one hand, it seems very polite in a way less groundbreaking than 59.3 or 95, but in a way, it's actually more honest about where he is going in his mind than the quartets surrounding it. So I like to think of 74 as the first mini late quartet. Actually, in that context, a lot of the movements make a lot of sense. Interesting. We'll hear from the beginning of this wonderful Adagio Manontropo. It's just so gorgeous. So here is some of the Adagio as performed by the Dover Quartet.
That really lovely music you just heard was from the Adagio Manontropo, the second movement of the harp quartet, the quartet number 10 in E-flat major, opus 74 of Beethoven, part of the middle quartet set that is featured on the Dover Quartet's volume two of their emerging complete Beethoven cycle. We're here on this Classical Chicago podcast talking with Camden Shaw, the cellist of the Dover Quartet. And of course, this brings us to the last of the middle quartets, the aptly named Serioso. This is certainly the most compact, not only of this, but of really all the Beethoven quartets. Uh, How would you say it differs from the other middle quartets? Well, Opus 95 is a really fascinating quartet because, again, as is often cited, it was not intended to be part of his public canon of music. It was a private experiment, and he wrote it to be performed for a small group of highly experienced musicians to see what they thought about this extremely lean, compact, and aggressive form. So the first movement, he does modulations, which actually ironically the pop industry would do a couple hundred years later, where there is no connective tissue harmonically between the keys. He'll just move the key up by a half step with no Mm. explanation. So he was experimenting with that. He was also experimenting with an extremely short, in a way you could say underdeveloped sonata form, where the development section is just so oddly short compared to the exposition and the recapitulation that it's very strange. It's almost more like passing through to the other side of a mirror (laughs) or something where it's a short transition and then you're experiencing what you already know in a different way. But it's unlike, for instance, 59.1, where there's an abundant and rich development section with a lot of twists and turns and plot developments. It was an unusual project for him. It's brilliant. But what I find interesting about this quartet also is that it is not the direction that he went in his next quartet or in any of the late quartets. So 95 really is an experiment. And it wouldn't be fair to say that it's a failed experiment. That's not fair at all. But it was an attempt in a certain direction. And he himself did not decide to pursue that type of writing very much. I'm sure he learned a lot from it. And still, you can find traces of that in the late quartets. It's the dark horse of his output. I'm making it sound like it's a bad quartet, which is really silly because it's an amazing quartet. (laughs) It's so good. It really is. Yeah, but it's it's very unusual. It's different. Well, since you mentioned, I'll read the actual quote of his letter to, I guess it's a performance instruction to George Smart, who I guess was in the group to originally perform the piece. He writes, Note bene, the quartet is written for a small circle of connoisseurs and is never to be performed in public. Should you wish for some quartets for public performance, I would compose them for this purpose occasionally. Of course, he relented from that, but it is interesting. In her notes to the album, Nancy November, the Beethoven scholar, makes comparisons to a piece Beethoven was writing contemporaneously, which is his incidental music to Egmont with that strong minor key feel that eventually ends in a blazing burst of the major at the end, just like this quartet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Audiences love this piece. So it's funny that he said it should never be performed in public. But the things that would have shocked audiences back then are very different from what shocks us now. And for instance, that unapologetic chromatic modulation with no connective chords would have been unusual at the time and upsetting probably for some years. <laughs> Whereas now, audiences of today would never even notice that because every pop song in the 80s did that in the final chorus to try to up the ante a little bit. And so we've been desensitized to some of the things he did. And actually, the end, as you mentioned, it actually goes out with this thrilling blaze in major, which audiences love that ending. It's so exciting. And it's also interesting for interpreters to look at how he names 
his fast sections of music. So I'm just going from memory here, and I could be wrong, but I think the last section of 95 is marked Allegro Molto, and yet it has to be performed very quickly. You can tell. It's it's just obvious musically that it has to be very fast. And, of course, Allegro de Molto at the end of 59.3, when he says presto, what does that mean? When you know that his Allegro Moltos are very fast, what is a true presto? And so I, I guess as a teaser for the late quartets, I'll tell you that there's a lot of discussion about that with the end of Opus 132. There's a tradition of people playing it rather slowly at the end, but it's marked presto, actually. And which from mm. here, we can see that for Beethoven, presto is a really big deal. He actually rarely wrote that marking. 95 is interesting as that point of comparison as well. It's a reference point to how he thought about different words for tempo. It's an amazing piece. It, yeah, it's funny. Audiences love it, but he never thought of it to be publicly performed. <laughs> the other thing to mention, it clocks in under 20 minutes, but there's a lot there. And let's talk about the other moments first and then come back to the first, because that's what we'll hear. There's the Allegretto Manon Tropo, which I guess is the closest thing we get to a slow movement here. It's uh, similar to the Seventh Symphony in that respect. And then, of course, the third moment that gives it its name, because the marking is Allegro, Assai, Vivace, Ma, Serioso, fast but serious. And then, of course, the finale, which begins with those incredibly intense opening larghetto bars, and it's, what, about just seven bars, and then launches into the Allegro Agitato. I love imagining all these sections as you're describing them. It's so true. It's such a journey. I love that you say the second movement is as close as we get to a slow movement. That's a really important way to describe it because when a performer is approaching a piece that doesn't have really a slow movement, there are two directions one could go. One direction you could say, well, the piece needs a slow movement and therefore we're going to stretch this tempo to be quite slow. Honestly, I would say this is about 50-50 that musicians do that. Then you could also say, well, this piece is a unique piece. Not all pieces have slow movements, or at least not obviously slow. And as part of a whole, it's going to make this experience feel different if it doesn't have a really expansive movement. We're much more in that second line of thinking. We like this movement to flow, and it does have beautifully long lines. But there's also a walking, a really nice quality from the just the opening bars in the cello, are actually quite gentle. Of course, in that movement, he is experimenting with very chromatic fugue subjects, and it's rich and twisted (laughs) the way that he's drawing these lines together. And I guess you could say that maybe that's the most similar to what, like if he had to take away himself from writing this quartet, what he might have used later on is some of that chromaticism. It's a wonderful fugue. And yeah, the third movement, fast but serious, uses silence so powerfully. I love that in the opening of that movement, that he has these tremendous outbursts and then the silence is deafening. That's fun to hear from him in that, because that's something used a little bit more in symphonic writing, but for him to use it with the quartet, it's very effective. I also love that the middle sections in that third movement are these chorales. They almost sound like Bach chorales. And again, they're calm and they're in major, so musicians have two choices. You can either make those calm major sections slow down to the point where you feel they're a tremendous contrast and were taken out of the previous situation. Or you can keep the tempo pretty much the same. And that gives you the feeling that although they're in major, they're chorale-like, it's more that your heart is still beating fast and you're remembering something calm as you're still in danger. (laughs) And again, we took that Mm. second approach. So it's a very different feeling. I hope it's effective. It's hard to know what to do with that movement in particular. And then, as you said, the opening bars of the last movement, they're so heartfelt and so brooding and dark. 
And then it's so brilliant how the main part of the last movement, the main vibe that we get is an undercurrent of fear, but it's not explicitly violent very much of the time. And it's almost scarier that way. It's like a, a good scary movie that there aren't a lot of cheap scares of cheap mm -hmm. thrills, but it's more the atmosphere of trepidation. Like we get that very beautifully in that last movement. It's a smoky, dangerous, nebulous liquid <laughs> we're in and it feels unsafe but we're not sure what's going to happen so marvelous quartet and then ends with that blaze in the major as we mentioned well i think that's a great discussion of the rest of the quartet now we'll come back to that first moment another blazingly fast moment allegro con brio and i think you guys take it at an even faster tempo than most ensembles but it has that strong concentrated f minor feel to it this moment's short enough that we'll play the whole thing so what would you like to say to set it up i think some words that come to mind for me with the opening of 95 are lean and mean there really is a, a <laughs> leanness to it the fact that he's starting all four instruments in unison so that we have no harmonic context only melodic context that it's in minor it gives the sound a thin and focused and aggressive edge beyond just the notes themselves. The fact that we're all doing it together with no underlying harmony, it's a different feel. Then immediately <laughs> there's a sense that we've modulated and we don't really know where we are. And this surprising octave from the violin in a new character, a new key, and suddenly we're playing something beautiful. And can we believe that it's happening? We don't really know. And it doesn't last very long. And so right away, I think he just throws all these curveballs at us within a few seconds. Again, we're now desensitized to some degree to just how jarring some of these changes, especially the harmonic changes, would have been at that time. But they're still shocking. We just never stay in one place for that? very long. Gorgeous. So right after he's set up this aggressive opening, which again is sharp at the edges and you feel like you're going to cut yourself on it, perhaps what he can do that's most shocking is to play something beautiful and round and generous and voluptuous. And so his second subject, which of course occurs only moments into the piece because everything is so condensed, is shocking in the sense that it's comfortable. And so even that is shocking because we don't expect it. And it doesn't feel like the kind of relief that you can trust because you know in the back of your mind that it cannot last mm -hmm. in this landscape. He loves throwing so many curveballs at you within just a few moments in this quartet. You know that you're in for a thrill ride, that's for sure. Aggressive and condensed are great ways to describe that opening. So let's hear it now. This is the opening movement, the whole thing. Allegro con brio from Beethoven's String Quartet number no. 11 in F minor, opus 95, the Serioso, as performed by the Dover Quartet. <laughs> Thank you. 
that aggressive condensed movement, as Camden describes it, is the opening, the Allegro Cambrio of the quartet number 11 and F minor, opus 95 of Beethoven, known as the Serioso, and I think you can hear why. It was performed by the Dover Quartet on their new album for CD Records, Beethoven Complete String Quartets Volume 2, the Middle Quartets, which will be officially released and made available for shipping on October 8th. Uh, you can order it even before that date as a pre-order on lots of sites as a physical CD, including the CD Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or Amazon.com or Archive Music or anywhere else you like to buy your CDs if you prefer to download or stream music. It's going to be available on iTunes on October 8th and of course on streaming sites as well. Spotify, Apple Music, Idagio, Primephonic, Tidal, you name it, will be there and I hope you'll be there because this is really some spectacular Beethoven playing. We're recording this podcast actually in the first half of August 2021, just a couple weeks after you completed recording Volume 3, The Late Quartets. So I have to ask how those recording sessions went and what different challenges those late quartets presented. Well, the good news is I think they went really well. (laughs) The challenges are different, as you said, and the late quartets are tremendously varied in their characters. So it's hard in a way to make a generalization about the period since each one was its own world. There are, of course, tremendous technical demands. Again, in this case, though, the musical demands, the emotional complexity is tremendous. For instance, recording the Cavatina, uh, the only piece that he cried while writing, so the manuscript is covered in his own tears, is an extreme amount Mm. of pressure. You feel that you want to deliver this incredible message, and so there's a different emotional expectation, and that was hard. One way where we made some good decisions that used that to our advantage is that we saved the last movement of 131 to be the last thing we would record on this project. 131 was Beethoven's favorite piece that he ever wrote. It's an unbelievable masterpiece. In a way, for us, it sounds like only the first the sixth and seventh movements are in the present tense and the rest of it is memory. So it's an interesting structure where there's a lot of remembrance, a lot of nostalgia, but the present is painful and in the case of the last movement, very, very violent. One of the great and most shocking openings of any movement is the beginning of that last movement. And it was the last thing that we were going to record on this project. So can imagine the years of effort, care, and emotion, and everything that went into this project. It was a big part of our lives, and it was very emotional to be finishing it. To be able to save nothing in that last movement, to know that it was the last thing we were Mm. playing, give it 100% of your effort. It was a perfect moment in the hall, to be honest, as from our perspective, where we were emotionally charged. We were feeling a lot, and I remember there was one opening chord where we said right before we played it, we're like, okay, guys, let's make this opening note the most terrifying sound anybody's ever heard. And remember that we don't have to play the whole movement afterward, because again, you know, we talked about a little bit, it's a recording and you can do things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And so we hit that first note so hard. I made myself jump. It was absolutely terrifying to know that that's in the album and going to be what we hear as that movement starts. We were all on the verge of tears finishing it. Yeah, it was a huge project. I'm sure we'll have another podcast talking about the lates as well, but (laughs) it's been an amazing process. And of course, Opus 131 is the famous C-sharp minor number 14 in the complete 
Ken in a piece so powerful that uh, Schubert had a quartet play it for him when he was dying. Wow, I can see why you would want to end with that. So Volume 3 will be a fall 2022 release as we've been releasing each of these volumes in the fall. So 2020 for Volume 1, 2021 obviously now for Volume 2, and then Volume 3 will be fall 2022. So I want to ask, how has life changed for the quartet since venues started opening again? And do you have a full schedule for the fall? Our schedule is looking pretty full now. And actually, even the summer, we've been doing a lot more performing. But I do think that at least right now where we are in the pandemic, things are still unpredictable. So we still get cancellations. When I look at my calendar, there's a part of me that doesn't believe it fully. It's like I wonder whether that gig is going to happen. For instance, right now, we were supposed to be in Norway, but because of the situations with visas and international travel and all that, uh, that was canceled. So it's hard to say what's going to happen, but we've been heartened with what we could do in terms of broadcasting concerts, both live and pre-recorded. And we are busy. We're definitely keeping busy. I'm starting this new venture with Curtis where we're actually going to be seeing the students live in the fall. There's so much to look forward to. And it definitely feels like uh, an optimistic moment. And I'm looking forward. I know it'll be before this podcast is released, but next week you guys will be performing at the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival. Patrice Michaels and I will happen to be there uh, mainly for the Santa Fe Opera, but we are looking forward to one of your noontime concerts there as well. In addition to the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival, are there any concerts in particular that you would consider highlights of your upcoming season? Well, you know, I'm very excited that we're going to be playing a new piano quintet with Anne-Marie McDermott, who's one of our favorite collaborators. She's such a wonderful pianist. And it's actually written by a friend of ours, Chris Rogerson is his name. And we're going to be be performing that, and I think that's going to be exciting. also wanted to ask how the quartet has been involved in the classical music world's, frankly, long overdue awakening to the need to bring more attention to the contributions of composers of color that was prompted by the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests last summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder. As you said, it's long overdue. We have talked about it a lot and have worked it into our programming in a few ways. For us, one of the things we've talked about is that there's a balance between representing voices that need to be heard and have already passed away. So great composers whose writings are already out there, but they're just not getting performed and then also supporting living composers as well, treating those both with importance, because also we don't want to only champion the works of the past that do deserve to be played and not make sure that we're recognizing the current voices as well. For instance, we've been playing a lot of William Grant Still's Lyric Quartet, absolutely beautiful piece uh, based on the personalities of three friends of his. It's fascinating and and sounds wonderfully American, too. It almost sounds like you're hearing lyrics in English, but there are, of course, no words to it. We've been playing that a lot, and also we're going to be playing Tanya Leone's string quartet coming up in the next season, and she's also the resident composer of Curtis moving forward. It's also, I think, going to be important that we don't lose track of this facet of our lives past just a year or two from now, that it becomes the new normal, that we're always making sure that more diversity is included in the programming and performing and all aspects of it. And this is probably something that a lot of your listeners will already know. If you haven't heard of the Sphinx organization, it's an amazing group that's been around for a long time that champions Black and Latino or Latinx musicians in many different ways. They have competitions, they have 
Spa. It's the Sphinx Performance Academy, it's called. We did a two-week workshop with them this year where we taught a lot of students of color from various backgrounds. It's an amazing organization, and they've been working on this stuff for decades already. So in a way, it's great to see that this conversation is expanding, and it's heartening to see that organizations like Sphinx are poised to make this an even bigger part of the conversation. So what other projects do you have coming up that you'd like to mention? We have some new works that have been written for us about which we're excited. One of them is a new piano quintet by our friend Chris Rogerson. Uh, We also have a new piece by Mason Bates, incredible composer who's the resident composer at the Kennedy Center, and, and we're in residence there as well as their string quartet in residence. So we've actually worked with him in the past, but this is the first premiere of his that we're going to do, and I'm excited about that as well. We're continuing our work with the bassist Edgar Meyer. We have the desire to do some new projects with him beyond just the quintet of his, which we've taken on tour many times over the last five years now. But we're talking with him about what other projects we can do, and it does seem like something's going to happen on that front as well. So actually a lot of new commissions and and collaborations, and yeah, it's going to be a fun couple years ahead. And finally, given the Chicago-centric nature of Sadie Records' mission, I always like to end these Classical Chicago podcasts uh, with a version of the following question. As an ensemble that tours so widely while maintaining a teaching base in Chicago, what impresses you most about the Chicago music scene as compared with the other places you perform? Mm, Well, we always love performing in the Chicago area. You can always hear a pin drop. That kind of focus is always in the hall. There's a real dedication to the arts. Chicago has a unique culture to it that is very different from the New York audience or the Philadelphia audience. It's a fascinating city with that kind of warmth to it as well. It it is special. Uh, We look forward to playing there. And of course, we try to play about three times a year at Northwestern University. So for anyone who is in the area who has not heard us yet, hopefully we'll be able to see you in person soon. (laughs) Well, that's great, Camden. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. And thanks for having me, Jim. This was our latest Classical Chicago podcast on Sadie Records. Thank you so much for listening.